You're listening to the Rogue Insider Podcast. So, in this one I want to cover some of the similarities between uh, conceptualization of war and game theory and essentially the marketplace Mm. and how uh, the economic environment is very much akin to war. Mm. So what I would like to do is clarify one concept before we dive into that. Mm -hmm. There's a German strategist uh, from the pre-war era, uh, Clausewitz, who wrote a critical um, text, Vom Krieger, or On War, and his famous quote that everybody knows from him is that uh, or is policy carried out by other means uh, by which he means that there's a perfectly smooth relationship between the carrying out of politics for political ends and the carrying out of war for political ends and he insists that whenever war is pursued it must always be towards a political end because if it's not, you're basically spending resources to accomplish little else. So if you'll, let me give you a quote from um, his text. I think it'll be good because uh, once we have a clear understanding of how the perfect smoothness of relationship between policy and warfare, uh, we can use, well, we can apply that concept to a lot of other places. He says, uh, We see therefore that war is not merely an act of policy, but a true political instrument, a continuation of political intercourse carried on with other means. What remains peculiar to war is simply the peculiar nature of its means. War in general and the commander in any specific instance is entitled to require that the trend and designs of policy shall not be inconsistent with the means. That of course is no small demand. But however much it may affect political aims in a given case, it will never do more than modify them. The political object is the goal, war is the means of reaching it, and means can never be considered in isolation from their purpose. Hmm. Well, that's... That, okay, as an enlightening take on it, that actually draws an interesting distinction between the two. Because in the market you have, obviously, profitability, as being the goal, shareholder value, essentially. Yep. Um, it being the goal, but the means by which you achieve that has continued to morph through a variety of, uh, I would say, policies, but essentially market theories. Yeah. Um, mean, like ways of engaging with the marketplace beyond the standard, let's just look at our basic product and make it more desirable and more valuable. Beyond mm -hmm. that, you're looking at how I can actually set about managing the various channels and uh, managing how I'm witnessed in the environment with the advent of new technologies and what actually supports me to be more competitive uh, given or actually just have a superior supply chain um, and all the various aspects that need to be involved in that uh, as a way to manage your competitiveness mm -hmm. um, and there's a continual evolution of the theories that are applied because as people uh, basically adjust to new innovations the 
environment itself can change. Like for example, you can have a strictly, um, a strictly balls to the wall, massive production, not too worried about um, quality. I just want to get it out there and saturate the market so that I'm the only option and people can't get out and uh, mm. access any competition. Mm. And then you don't consider anything else. You don't talk to anyone in your supply chain. You, or like, Sorry, you don't talk to the people who are consuming it. You don't talk to the people who are going to be selling it at the street level. You're basically just looking at manufacturing your product and getting it out there. And and from there, you start to step into, well, let's value add and let's manage product chains. Oh, sorry, um, not just supply chains, but let's integrate vertically and mm. uh, have a role in the resource production so that we're profiting on, on many levels and have price advantage in that respect. But it's not purely price competitiveness. We're now looking at uh, value adding uh, beyond just supply chain efficiencies. Mm -hmm. And the value adding it shifts into a lot of theories. So when you say that war is a way of uh, achieving policy by other means, mm. is that a fair summary? Yes, then that's it's accurate. as if it's as if the market theory or the current um, the current model of market competition as the the best current model because it keeps changing. At one mm. moment it might be relationship marketing, and now it seems to be like depending on what the market is. If I look at what's popular with Instagram, for example. Mm -hmm. um, the, it's not so much about focusing on your competition and making sure that they don't steal your ideas. Essentially, you're looking at, can I continue to innovate? Can I be an authentic representation? Because the market shifted from, can I be a clone, a perfect clone of whatever is popular right now? Mm -hmm. uh, it shifted to, can I be uh, an exemplary model of uh, innovative ownership? And so the actual attitude became less about... Uh, what it is that makes my product likely to fit models mm. and became more uh, more about can I actually relate? It's like relationship marketing's gone an extra level. It's like can I prove that I know who is connecting with me and that they that I am available to them and that they like me? Like it even works with selling wine, and um, that you. Um, when somebody comes into the store, not just the stores, maybe it's they're a retailer, when they arrive, you have already done your research and you're yep. not looking at making wines that are going to pander to them. You've done your research on the person that's coming in and the person that comes in, you go, hey, Steve, how's it going with your such and such? Maybe he's bought a new mansion somewhere. God knows what's happening. And you approach the individual so that he likes the fact that he gets to relate with you and he has like a personal bias. Mm. And that's where relationship marketing really stepped in. And people started to uh, value the relationships, not just their pure economics. And it's gone further with social media and the amount of information we can access. And it goes even further still when we're no longer looking at being simulacra. Um, we're looking at actually being representative innovators. But that's mm -hmm. in a, a social media environment. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, it all depends on what the market is. Um, and in terms of... Uh, how you would uh, sort of policy by other means. Um, yeah. We're looking at um, competitive advantage by other means, we could say. Mm. And competitive advantage uh, is, is looking at leveraging a, diff a point of difference. Uh, what is it that makes, for example, this podcast different from other podcasts? It's probably the fact that we are not only based in New Zealand, uh, that we're attempting to broach topics that aren't broached currently mm. within this country so mm -hmm. with, with the, we're leaders in that respect yeah uh, we have a very authentic 
well, I certainly do. I can't speak for you, of course, but <laughs> I represent myself authentically. This is this is actually me. It's not just me projecting what I want people to interpret. So I'm adopting the current model. And also, if people get involved and they want to relate to me, um, I'll take information and I'll relate to the people because I'm, I suppose, I'm small scale. Mm. So certainly, I'm trying to incorporate the modern models. Now, that's in this market. Uh, if you want to throw up another one, there's perhaps other models of market competition that would be that would be better. Perhaps we want to focus instead on uh, value adding, which is which is always important to separate yourself from competition. Value adding by uh, rather than focusing on relationships, we value add by being available through many different languages through multiple websites. And so we, we value add by, by being available through all the different channels in all the different countries. And we start to look at value adding in terms of how we can have uh, shipping to all different countries. And so mm. this becomes favorable because if I wanted this product then and I was actually in another country, uh, I'm going to be going through this supplier because that supplier is, is going to be able to get it to me. And so I like that it's shifted to a, a personal level. I think it's really cool. Uh, but if you're competing uh, by other means for the competitive advantage, it's full spectrum in a way. We're looking at all the different dimensions involved. So uh, all, the, all the dimensions involved in those two examples, if we look at the dimensions involved in our example, you know, what what color? Let's look at all the senses. You're looking at your eyes, ears, your nose. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, mouth. I mean, it could be in terms of taste, but I don't think we we're not a we're not a tasteable product. But we'll look at what dimensions can actually be interpreted, and then try and accommodate for or um, examine the relevance of every single dimension that's relevant. And so mm. that overlays with war, because again, you're looking at full spectrum dominance, as the Americans might say. You're looking at, are there any dimensions of influence that we can be exploited on? Do we need to protect those? Mm. And it used to be, and certainly it is in sort of an in, in industrial, uh, industrial aspect, you will need to protect your intellectual property, your IP, mm. and you're going to need to uh, insulate yourself against the power of unions to an extent. Uh, there's all sorts of different internal and supply chain investments you're going to need to factor and you're going to need to calculate how much you want to invest in that in terms of resources. It's, there is a very clear uh, algorithm, well, not really an algorithm, sorry, a formula mm. by which you calculate how much resources you need to apply to, to different areas because, of course, corruption and collusion can have negative impacts in much the same way as sabotage, and um, you know, spy, spy activities can affect you in war. So there are so many analogies. And even when you look at uh, basic economic studies, they, when I was studying it, they tried to steer us away from uh, value systems which suggest, suggested that money is the bottom line. But we all knew that it was, even though they were trying to tell us it wasn't. And they tried to steer us away from the concept of a marketplace competition as a war and instead they tried to suggest it was like sport and that it helps improve the product but if it is to be analogous to a war then it's just a matter of considering what's at stake and what are the rules and markets some markets are really free and others are quite regulated some so it's like having wars in different areas and different fields of life or different parts of the world where 
maybe there are overarching powers that control what you can do, say war crimes and say market crimes. The analogies are endless. Mm. So I found the deeper I went into uh, market theory, the more like war theory it became because it was getting to the point where I was having to map all of the relevant dimensions in an environment, in a supply chain, in terms of staff management, in terms of resources put into managing or observing competition, in terms of investing in relationships and checking on relationships and betrayals that um, clients have with other suppliers, uh, investments in research and development, like all of these in all of the different fields that it could be shifting into uh, vertically integrating supply chains. Um, there's so much that can be analyzed and looked into. It's, it's like it's a bottomless hole, but actually marketing budgets are limited to how much you have available or how much you project your business to grow. So mm. if you had, say, if you had, say, um, a, well, I mean, we'll just do a lump figure. If you're a million dollars in turnover and you're only taking, say, a 30% uh, margin on that, right? So you're, you're down to 300,000. Mm -hmm. And then and then you want to pay your staff and you want to pay your factories. Um, and, and that's just to get the product produced. I mean, this is product X. I haven't even named what it could possibly be. Let's sure. just say by the end of it, you're looking at um, only 10% is going to be some sort of profit, which could be pretty good, really, depending on the in industry. And that 10%, you haven't even covered your marketing or your research and development. And you're thinking, well, looking at the business growth, maybe it's going to, we can take a bit of debt, might grow in the future. So you can calculate all you want. But say that 100,000, you want to reinvest it entirely and you don't want to take debt. And we'll say that that's your marketing budget, which is huge. Mm. And that is going to have to cover not only your research and development, right? It's going to, of the product itself as to shaping to what the market needs as the market shifts as to, well, maybe it needs to be slightly larger this year, or maybe it needs to change color, or maybe we have to constantly appear new, even though it's the same thing. Maybe we just give it a new, um, give it a new ab advertising model, or we have to change the way that it's perceived, or maybe we just put it inside out. Who knows what it is, but it has to be changed so that it comes across as as new there's to be a constantly uh, a representation of progress because people people want to feel up with the play and you need to look up with your play and so that could be part of your product development and your research just to check out what the market demands of you but you then also are going well actually i don't want to have to pay my staff any more than i have to so i'm going to need to budget for an outside assessment of how my managers are operating because I've now got 87 staff and those staff have, have started trying to organize into unions and I don't want to get in trouble for trying to be a union breaker but I also don't want myself to be set up in a way that allows um, that allows me to be bullied into losing that margin that I need uh, but I also want to be fair on my staff so I've got to try and manage it and I've got to examine it so I've got to invest in better managers to try and look into all of that but I also need to keep an eye on what my managers are up to and I also need to keep an eye on what other management structures are operating operating like oh and I'm also going to want to research and see if there are any new models by which businesses are operating but how much do I want to spend on that do I want to spend 10 grand a year do I want to just do I want somebody just to spend what a couple of days uh, a month like how much is the right amount and so 
every single dimension of influence. Oh, and then there's, oh, what about this important uh, design that we've come up with? How do we keep that secret? How do we keep the security of our of our uh, research department and division? How do we test this integrity of that? So we're all of a sudden we're blowing out our IT costs. And we're thinking, well, you can be absolutely secure, but that's going to cost us all 100000 Or we can just be casual, but then our product could get, our, you know, design could be stolen. So there's the question of, well, what makes a product viable? And how much do you need to protect each of the dimensions? And it's all about managing the opportunity costs. But it's not, well, when I say it's all about that, it's also expanding your awareness of what dimensions influence you in a constantly adapting environment. So you have to, well, for example, if you're blind to a dimension, say say you could be in your, in your business of trying to get these widgets out online so that people put them on their websites and you're promoting this widget and the coding of the widget is, uh, is managed in a way that if anyone copies it, you know, you've got your copyrights all managed and you're trying to get it out there and, and get it to people, but you need to you need to try and launch quickly so you're trying to keep it a bit hush and then you start having to invest in well once you've got a certain amount of capital down you start being worried about how the staff are going to operate and you're wondering well what's the chance that one of them betrays me and how can I be sure of that and you start having to invest if it's not money then it's time and thought into considering all the dimensions by which you could be betrayed and again, that's a bottomless pit because it might be that you never are betrayed and that actually you've just, you've just invested all of this time and energy from upper level management or mid-level, whatever it is, uh, into a dimension that was not relevant. So you start to wonder, well, how can I check whether these dimensions are relevant? And it becomes this a game or an exercise in intuiting which dimensions are relevant for this current um, and, and I'm trying to use a war metaphor now uh, theater it's like a theater of war in that you're watching for which dimensions are relevant and then you have to do your best within you know within budget because I'm, I'm sure that with with military you have a, a limited number of troops and you have a certain amount of resource that you can allocate mm. and in the same way you'd look at what dimensions need to be managed and you divide up the resources that you have and the manpower you have to watch them as best you can without sacrificing anyone in particular, but also you, you need to gamble. And there is a very real, there's a very real crossover. So the deeper I got into the market theory, the more I discovered it is just like war theory in that regard, in terms of uh, battlefield management. But you're talking about politics and I wanna see, I wanna understand what you've got from my little rant there. Mm. to see how that overlays with your interpretation of war and politics by other means. Mm. Well, that's great. There's so much fertile ground that we can dig over here. So one of the things that's interesting about strategy is the question of how much one invests in strategizing is itself a strategic decision. And any analysis which doubles down on itself in that way, I find intriguing. Right? It's very clear in relationship marketing theory and channel management that they've concluded there are particular formulae 
by which you can calculate how much of your budget needs to be allocated mm. to different channels. Mm-hmm. And that's come from market experience. So there are, you know, there are relevant calculations. Mm. The, the way that you calculate how much you need to apply resources to different channels and uh, make decisions with strategy, you have, you have particular uh, strategical, um, what, what, how would you say, there are, you've explained it to me before, I believe, when you're talking about perspectives on strategy, there are main systems that you have in political theory? Well, in strategic studies, there's a variety of variety of ways that we can fan out the threads that are involved in it, right? So you could fan it out in terms of saying that there's a very theoretical level and there's a very practical level, and then there's a place where they cross over in the middle. So at one point, you're actually um, applying your strategic analyses and getting you know quick feedback on what's occurring there. You might say that um, people who manage OODA loops for the military, which is the observe, orient, decide, act uh, approach, um, they're constantly getting feedback, and the point is to try and get a faster OODA loop than the other guy. So when you're constantly having a time advantage on every action, so you can constantly outpace them, and if you have the ability to disrupt that decision-making cycle, you can paralyze the structure so that it becomes uh, possible for you to um, double down on your advantages in every situation and quickly you know, run away to whatever your political end or victory condition is. Um, and then you can step, we can step back from that into a more theoretical perspective and say, um, how do we think about um, the applications for the strategic considerations? How do we apply them? You know, what is it? And then from there you get into an even much more arcane version of thinking about strategy and strategic studies, which is becomes a very navel-gazing process of being like, what actually is strategy? Like, what are we doing here? Um, and that kind of high theoretical level in some sense matches the the space dimension right so the military divides their operations into tactical operational and strategic levels at the tactical level you have single units operating um i should point out here that i don't i've never been involved in the military and i so all of this is purely from an outside perspective um and then you've got an operational level where you do all the kind of logistical management and that kind of thing. And then on the strategic level, um, you're, that's where you're doing this kind of overarching theatre operations. And then over and above that, you have grand strategy, which is where you have this kind of like high-minded ideals of how do you turn the ship of state towards its victory conditions and uh, how do you deal with the fact that you both pursue your own ends because you're trapped in this moment now but also if you only focus on what's at the moment uh, what's happening now it's very easy to walk backwards into a blind alley and then suddenly discover that all of your freedom of action has been denied to you so how do you maintain the oversight of um, allowing the structure that you're a part of to 
orient itself towards maintaining these freedom of actions um, so that you always have options in the future in order to kind of maximize the amount of uh, flexibility and maneuverability that you have in the future. I immediately notice a divergence occurring between the real war and the tactical goal and the general competitive environment of a marketplace and that the profit margin is in perpetuity and the tactical battles aren't so pronounced. You have a, a productivity dimension, of course, but you don't have the same sort of need for the freedom of mobility. It, um, I'm, I'm trying to see if there's an analogy there that fits. You, know, you need your troops to be able to move around well, you also need to be able to get your advertising to the people. I mean, it's pretty loose. So that's hard to find a mesh. I'd like to explore that difference. Yeah, the analogy is not very precise in some respect at the kind of close-up level. So, But what about at the larger level? What about at the operations level where... I imagine that the logistics of the market is a major source of concern for all business planners because they're trying to maximise oh, efficiency across so many dimensions, I assume. Yeah, so I'm, I'm seeing how it's it's probably only relevant. Well, it's more relevant at that level. You're looking at how you can get uh, regions influenced. So it's like... It's like an area that you want influenced. You can have little tactical battles and that, how the actual tactical battle operates doesn't fit. But the desire for a region of influence and the protection of the supply and communication channels and the coordination efforts involved, that all fits. That's all much the same. But in terms of the tactics, no. Uh, and even at the higher level of the greater strategy or of the naval gazing, as you put it, um, Obviously not the navy, uh, the 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 sorry bad pun um, in the dreamy space that we go to when we're looking at abstractions and theories. Uh, that space, I I found that a little bit unnerving when I was looking into it because yeah 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 you're looking at phenomenology, you're looking at what's happening inside of people's minds and and how you can actually engage with it, and out of it comes magic. There are some amazing discoveries that come from engaging with the abstract nature of uh, the market. Um, into, not just in terms of let's just look outside the market at what a market is, but let's go to how does reality, you know, how does philosophy get involved? How can we actually um, access realms that we didn't even know existed? Mm -hmm. uh, and don't essentially aren't measurable in the same way and so it, it drifts into really um, different paradigms you have and just in the same way that there's philosophy uh, you have your positivistic let's all ground it in repeatable experiments you've got your realism which we're going to incorporate some phenomenon and some uh, trends that we observe through humanization of analysis and then we're also going to move completely into this other bubble where people are going into dream worlds like especially with the advent of internet and people engaging in uh, abstracted worlds virtualization of experience these mm -hmm. altered 
realities in mm-hmm. a way, uh, which is opening up this phenomenon of uh, environments that are entirely uh, divided from the strict material. Like, for example, Second Life, where people are buying and selling uh, virtual assets. I mean, in, in that respect, they're recreating the market environment in the virtual, mm-hmm. but there is something odd about the minds of the people that are inclined towards engaging in that world. And it's not that the behavior they're performing in that world is odd, because that's buying an asset that's um, popular and then waiting for it to uh, increase in value and then selling it for real world profit it's, uh, it's just standard trading yeah. it's just another but buy f- low sell high right right that's right so it's nothing amazing there but in terms of the fact that people's minds are shifting towards that world it makes us question what actually is happening and what actually is a market and um you know, are we looking at selling off assets anymore or are we shifting more into uh, theory and abstraction and desires? Are we actually selling people um, ways of thinking? And it moves well, into this realm of phenomenon. But do you think it's fair to say that the, the root phenomena, if we try and track the market down to um, its kind of most fundamental driving force, is it fair to say that human desire is where we end up? Uh, if you trace a market back to its root, you're looking at the purpose for uh, a congregation. And it's people are going to the market to meet a need. So it's the mechanism by which we negotiate the meeting of our needs. And that's that's an umbrella that maps over anything. It becomes this um, loose analogy that is very sloppy. Because then I can talk about um, you, you can talk about sexual market value, and you're not even talking about yourself trading it for financial value. You're talking about I have sexual needs, and this is um, this is how much I have to offer, and I'm taking it to the market. And like you're a piece of meat, and you're looking at making a, an exchange. Yeah, and and the well, market that, analogy that brings up the question of whether the market okay. analogy is an imposition, or like is it a thing that is placed onto our minds, or is it something that comes up from within them, or is it something that's discovered? Right, and this is this is where you're branching into the phenom- the market philosophy and and the phenomenon of it, because the the idea itself is not concrete because you're looking at transaction theory and transactional analysis is is its own psychological theory yeah uh, you're looking at what it is for humans to negotiate transaction all the dimensions involved mm-hmm. and then it's like well if I can use transactional analysis and TA theory and I, I don't even need to use the word market what even is market is it this placeholder for an idea or a thought form or an impression, a human impression of an activity. And we're putting this word on it. And of course, it's very tautological and then you're just gonna use words to define the words. It's, it's the facilitation of a transaction. Hmm. 
and it's a loose term because it's not only the facilitation of the transaction it is also the transaction and it is also the non-transaction with the facilitation and it is also the environment in which the facilitation could occur hmm. so well, which one is it well we just sort of lump them together and then we divine our way through and it functions fine but it does make me wonder if something is missing which is where the navel gazing comes in do we want to devote people to that and the answer is in a corporate environment no in a in a university environment yeah sure yeah from a philosophical perspective it sounds like there's a lot that's worth drilling into inside that but uh, it's interesting that we appear to be intuiting our way through a forest of ambiguities well as much as you intuit i mean let's boil it down to the positivistic dimensions marketing's very much based on positivism look before yeah. we put this product to market let's make sure with our focus and control groups that the size is right that the shape is right that we get the responses we want for the price that we can afford mm -hmm. it's actually incredibly mathematical mm -hmm. What, what are our p-values? What's the probability that it's going to perform the way that we predict? You know, can we afford it to swing either way? How much will it swing if the market, you know, if the environment, sorry, stays stays the way it is? Um, what's our confidence level? And then can we go and present that to people who can back us financially? Mm. Mm. What keeps coming up in my mind is the military effort to win hearts and minds. The, the, well, you've got to have the support for the war, right? Yeah, like in the, in the time when um, military efforts were primarily designed around just trying to destroy as many of the enemy as possible or you know destroy their material or drive them out of a place, it was all very simple. But the idea of using a military for the purpose of changing the hearts and minds of people or winning those hearts and minds... It seems to me that there's an analogy there for what you're talking about in the marketplace because you've made a, a what would you call it, a phase transition from one particular variety of purpose to another particular variety of purpose and the same thing happens where and we can say that in the market the corporations or businesses or firms exist for the purposes of profit production but then it goes through this shift where you're trying to change minds win the hearts and minds of the uh, market audience. Yes, sure, sure do. I mean, negative reviews go, <laughs> negative <laughs> reviews go a big way. But we're also trying to win the hearts and minds of venture capitalists through our market analysis. Mm. So the companies themselves have their own ideas. Well, in order for our, in order for me as an individual working for a corporation to continue on my climb up the hierarchy, I have to be shown to be bringing betterment to the business. Mm -hmm. So I actually have to come up with ideas that are going to be viable and then I run them by the directors, the board of directors. So it actually feeds back on itself. You then take the analysis and you try and win the hearts and minds of those who are going to back you. Mm. So, I mean, much, much as the military has to have the hearts and minds of the people that are supporting the military, right, which is their directors in a way, you also need the hearts and minds of the people that you're trying to conquer to show that they want you there. And so, yes, I think that analogy fits. Mm. There's an interesting irony that Peter Sloterdijk remarked upon in his book Rage and Time, which was that 
all of these kind of like communist revolutionaries of the 20th century who are operating in the West, who are trying to institute the sort of um, social transition by taking the, um, they sort of took the emotional energies, what he calls the rage, the thymotic emotions um, of the people and try and funnel that towards a social manipulation that allowed those revolutionaries to dictate the changes that would occur inside society in order to create a shift towards a communist society Sloterdijk points out that the management of those thymotic emotions that rage is in fact exactly the same as the variety of uh, resource management decisions that are made you know uh, by people who are trying to al- decide whether or not they should allocate a certain amount of financial resource to a particular end within the firm or not, or how much they should dedicate um, to the uh, to particular ends inside the marketplace. So in fact, the attempt to move away from what we have called quote-unquote capitalism, something which I think is an, a, a null concept, um, is completely devoid. It's a failed project. Well, because we're treating the hearts and minds of the people as the capital, or as the commodity. Mm. Well, I can see that that is applying the... Straight away, I mean, it's always going to. There's always the way, because it's so universal, to apply the market analogy to that situation. I mean, we're no longer talking about wars, um, in as much as we're talking, you know, armies uh, looking for agendas for nations, and we're not talking about... um, uh, corporations and trying to uh, get the interest of their capital suppliers uh, calculate what's going to do well and win over the hearts and minds of their clientele or uh, mm. consumers we're shifting to political agendas or no, national uh, national maneuvers um, looking at the interest and opinion of the polity mm-hmm. as a resource so it seems like we're not we're not comparing war anymore we're moving to overlaying the market theory to politics and you can say absolutely yes that of course fits that's what's kind of spooky and ridiculous about when you get into the postgrad level marketing studies particularly with market philosophy they they say to you well you don't need to um, you don't really need to acknowledge so much of what you studied in undergrad because well and actually you're gonna to need to forget most of that because that was conditioning to have you live under a different model. What we're looking at now is a universal model that can be applied to all situations and you can channel yourself into any industry, into any job, into any task that involves or is operating as a, in a corporate environment and that is everything. Like you look at any political party, try and find me a political party that doesn't operate as a corporation. Mm. Yes, but also the other way around, right? Like all revolutionary projects, all market projects, and all military projects at some point hinge on trying to just change people's minds. And mind changing, the way that I think about it, is as an inherently political... Like, if you're if you're in the business of trying to persuade people, you're, you're in a political paradigm. Well, okay. well that's... That's one aspect of it, because you you have on the one hand, on the one hand, manipulating people, mm-hmm. or, you know, manipulating being you know you, 
as an analogy. Manipulation itself is an analogy because it's talking about using your hand to move things around. That's right, from the Latin manus. Right, so rather we'll say uh, directing, Mm -hmm. redirecting people's interests. So being a director of people. But then there's also people self-directing and you just facilitating that. So you're looking at your market, you're looking at your market through a lens of how can we shape people's desires to what we can give, mm-hmm. but you're also going, how can we change what we give to match what people want? Mm. And that does separate yourself from politics in a way, unless you're, say, New Zealand first in New Zealand and you can just chop and change to whichever um, party's going to be the winner. but. <laughs> just just to bring it home there. Um, true, true. But uh, otherwise you're looking at, like, you have a political party that has maybe a conservative party that's going, well, we have these conservative values that are core. How can we remind people that that's what they want? Mm. So you're already operating as if you believe that's what they want and the people don't know. So you're enlightening the people um, or bringing the people's awareness to a to your conclusion and so is the other party so you're competing for and it seems to be very one-sided as opposed to very seldom is there the party that's going to go hey um, i'm just going to be a reflection of i'm just going to meet the needs of what the people want i mean new parties pop up thinking that's what they are hey i'm a new party i'm the 2020 party and we are the true democracy party and we are the actual embodiment of what people want. It was like, well, it just doesn't bloody work that way. And not until we have a technology that allows everyone to share their opinion simultaneously, and then some conglomerate um, amalgamation of those opinions can somehow print out the middle path. I mean, well, bring it on. That sounds pretty amazing. Well, I have bad news for you. Um, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Excuse my... <laughs> uh, in political theory, um, oh God, I can't remember the name of the paper. So you'll just have to trust me on this. I read a paper once upon a time that um, just shows that mathematically there's no way to average desires across a population in a fair way using a political system. Like democracy is a flawed project in the sense that the idea that the best average of what people want can be dictated through a political bureaucracy to an end and then that end instituted in a manner in which the demos intended that's that's never going to happen with 100% accuracy you're only ever approaching a, a relative value of representation and probably not a very high one well it, it makes sense because if I consider like a, the, the norm or the modality I mean a mode in the middle it's not going to represent the outliers there's yeah. no way to reconcile the two yeah, let alone getting into preference falsification and all of that kind of thing. Okay, just to finish up and offer a bit of closure on this absurdly large topic, uh, I would conclude that the degree to which the market can be analogized to a war is limited to the operational level of the war and the use of the conceptualization is of market as a universal uh, interpretation of transaction within a bounded environment restricted by laws and rules and regulations 
Yeah, my impression, my strongest impression from this conversation is how much the degree to which we rely on concepts is actually just invalid. A lot of these concepts that we use seem to me to be just habits of thought and that they don't actually really represent um, like proper conceptual models of the actual world. Oh, I hear it. A market, a marketplace, a theatre, a theatre of war. Yeah. I'll oh, talk to you there. These analogies are, you know, interesting <laughs> and informative, but they're not, they don't actually represent uh, real world divisions. And that any time we investigate them with the edge of where those concepts are, yeah, I'm here. I, <laughs> you've lost me. The edge of where those concepts are basically uh, evaporates. The only thing I wanted to close up on with regards to the relevance of market analogies for war uh, is that on the operational level, on the logistical level, and on the winning of hearts and minds to some degree is relevant, and also in terms of how a business might want to innovate, manage dimensions of influence and also appeal to desires of directors and also you have this other degree of finance which is not so much relevant but certainly the central objective so there is a lot of crossover but I didn't find uh, a fair and fitting crossover that fit the tactical dimension Mm -hmm. so that was an interesting discovery uh, what do you think of the sport metaphor? Because you mentioned some scepticism about it previously. The The difference for me is that war doesn't happen within rules, but sport does happen within rules, and mostly people operate within a marketplace that has at least some sort of authoritative oversight. So do you think that the sport analogy is more apt? In sport, uh, people still cheat and get, when they can get away with it and that's certainly relevant for the market that's another layer of um, exploitation now, if you're not tracking the ability or, or sorry um, an industry's potential to code around regulations that prevent organizational collision um, a common one for was to use an online game mm. And then to coordinate and share data through the chat of an online game. And I've seen that used in sitcoms and TV series. But yes, that was that was a go because it was a medium that couldn't be tracked yeah. with the advent of technologies. And certainly you've got tunnels. So it's very hard to prevent and police certain dimensions. And I think the same goes with sports. Right? You have people that don't think it's fair for people who are using steroids to compete. And then you have other people who are hormonally augmenting and then giving it enough time so that the evidence is gone mm. so this there are dimensions of cheating that that push the marketplace analogy outside of strictly sports but yes we are governed by rules and 
in war, I can only see that being relevant when it's when it's a small war between minor parties. Mm. Well, okay. So if I mean, if you have a business, there is an overarching greater power. Yeah, if you have a business that's operating within a single state's kind of market sphere, I can see how um, the sport analogy is at least more apt. But what about multinationals? What about really, really large businesses that operate in the international space and are not strictly speaking policed by any one particular state oversight? and therefore have a certain amount of flexibility. And we do see... Well, you have to look at theatres of war. You're looking at markets being the same as a theatre. It's very much a, a nature of of the meaning of the word. It, it gets blurry to the point where, why are we even naming it? Why can't we just change the label and it serves like a functional role? It's like a placeholder. Yeah. I think you are leaning towards identifying the meaninglessness of the words themselves. So if you're going to look at um, multinationals shifting into different markets with different rules and regulations, they look at those environments as theatres, much like a military may say, oh, well, well here we have a, a primarily naval theatre, so yeah. we're restricted by the laws of the sea, in as much as we are restricted. Maybe you're just purely restricted by the fact that the material dimensions demand more boats. Sure. So I can see that the analogy fits more towards a, you know, a war metaphor mm. in that regard. Well, but, but fundamentally, it's a matter of overlaying. This is what the, the market theory I was, was looking at um, in the principal agent dynamics. Um, you need to look at all of the vectors, all of the dimensions of influence, and then just cut away the ones that aren't relevant. Mm. So an overarching theory of, or like a war theory or some sort of logistics analysis, um, it can then be cut back to re and reduced down to all of the relevant dimensions and then resources divided among them. And you would do that for anything. When you divide your resources among the relevant dimensions in a multinational, working in multiple theatres, you'd do the same with... Uh, um, distributing forces to try and contain an enemy in, an, in a variety of areas simultaneously. You do the same for a small media company trying to figure out how much it wants to spend on putting up posters. Hmm. Right, so there's a, there's a uniform, or, or not uniform, sorry, a universal um, behavioral pattern, but the pattern isn't uniformly labeled. Hmm. So what would we call that, like resource allocation? Or does that just fit directly within management? Management of what? This is where we go back to, management of the market, management of the resources in the theatre towards a particular agenda. Can you boil it down again for us? Hmm. I'm thinking of a historical analogy. Um, you know, the Dutch East India Company. Right. Or the, um, the was it British East India Company as well. They're, these sorts of um, massive corporate entities that existed at, um, in the pre-modern time is they're so large that they started to take over the governance aspects of the areas that they were operating in. 
Well, banana republics, right? Mm. Couldn't you say the same for Bonita in Jamaica? Yeah, maybe, right? Like, it's not just a company town. It's a company country. Well, once you're over 50, I think they're up over 70% of the GDP in one corporate entity. Yeah. And you look at New Zealand. New Zealand has over 50%, or is it 48, whatever it is, uh, with Fonterra. Mm, or Korea being a milk conglomerate. With Samsung. Right. So how much sway does that firm have over the political environment? Well, probably quite a lot. I would imagine a lot, but it's interesting that um, modern Western militaries are still under civilian oversight, and in a similar way, the market is under a civilian oversight. So even if, so when market operator, uh, market agents affect the decision making of the civilian oversight, they're doing it um, through motivating the reasoning and conclusions that the civilian oversight draws rather than just doing it through a strict chain of command. To see if that lays over, if it translates across the metaphors. So if we look at motivating a people in your country to support, um, say, trade sanctions against another nation, as opposed to um, if it's a, a democracy or rather than a dictatorship where the leader just decides it. Mm-hmm. So the people need to be motivated and aroused against a certain state. And so the people say, hey, we need to slow this other state, let's put sanctions on. And so you're competing, and it's military, you need the motivation of the people, and you're utilizing this technology to disseminate information to rouse them to a certain activity. Now, is that translatable to uh, corporations? And I would say, absolutely. We're rousing the people to want McDonald's mm. in small towns mm. because Kiwi Burger that's our tucker or whatever it is mm-hmm. you know there's all those key phrases but it's about putting the information out there to foment desire and it's the same that goes for um, a military that is subject to its people yeah it's interesting as well that even in dictatorships the the governance structure still has constituents like a a dictatorship can't just alienate every other person in the country with complete impunity because all they will do is lead to further overthrows and that sort of thing right increases the prospect of unrest Mm. anyway I wonder how much unrest a, a media campaign or technological innovations and pushes for opinion on things so here's an example um memes that promote the necessity for the preservation of an environment Mm. i mean that's beneficial to to particular industries within a nation the ones that are maybe trading with tourism relying on the pristine environment and so it's not necessarily a national agenda it's actually the um the alliance between parties with you know, all the vested interests pushing for that. And then they shape the people's opinion and they then create policy and adjust the rules of the market. Hmm. So you look at that and then you go, oh, okay, well, that, that's the same as you engaging with, with wars and conflict with, well, not necessarily wars, but sanctions and 
competition with other nations because you could have vested interests within a nation or vying for maybe maybe oil interests. That's a classic example. Oil interests within a nation. Um, I don't want to name names, but it seems pretty obvious what I could be alluding to here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that then uh, vie for influence over the um, not only the people in the, in the political body, but the political sphere in terms of um, Congress or maybe actually the president of the nation itself by saying, hey, we need this for strategical interests and we're going to make a lot of money and this is good for us. Or say to people, oh, hey, this is going to make cheaper fuel. I mean, that's not the way they go about it, but it's going to take cheaper fuel. Are you willing to compromise a bit of morality in order to save a bit of money? Mm. Like there's, I don't think that'll work, but I guess there's a difference there because with ethical issues, hmm, I don't know that there's a complete overlay. Yeah, it's it's difficult to draw form, firm conclusions about this sort of thing in the political arena because, of course, um, any organisation which goes about subverting a state um, attempts to keep as much of that under wraps as possible. I can think of a few examples, though. Um, the Berlin speech, tear down this wall in the fall of the United Soviet Socialist Republics. Right? There must be a certain amount of... Um, relationship between those two events or and then there's direct military overthrows like the um, US performed in Libya and then there's the more kind of uh, uh, subversive approaches like that pursued by Simon Mann um, and then the overthrow of Kuwait by uh, mercenaries using a variety using a kind of media manipulation campaign um, to indict all of the parts of the government in some kind of fake scandal and then backing it up with uh, knocking out the electricity networks and that kind of thing but those all still rely on 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 varying amounts of force as opposed to just straight out desire or we can make another comparison to the um, colour revolutions after the fall of the Soviet Socialist Republic um, of the uh, small countries in Eastern Europe that overthrew their communist leaders in favour of a more open society and those a lot of those were accomplished you know, with, a, with a minimum of force or apparent minimum of force at least I don't know what the market analogy version of a strict overthrow of a regime is. Well, in a market analogy, let's look at the resource base of each nation. Resources in terms of what can be extracted from nature and resources in terms of what can be produced by the people. And we want to expand our current ownership of the marketplace, which is, what, 7 billion people. I want to expand it so that we can capture access to resources and capture the productivity of those people. So essentially taking over nations, but not necessarily taking over nations in in the strict, um, we're extending our borders, but rather we're taking over that nation in terms of capturing their productivity. So how can we go about achieving that? And you do use various tactics to capture their interest so that they buy into it. They allow your corporations to set up like institutions and, and retail outfits or manufacturing for cheaper wages or 
you know, whatever it is that you, allows you to start penetrating and having an influence. You start getting, you know, of, of all of the boxes that could be packed by the 100 million people that are in this country, those that can pack boxes, 20% of those that could lift and pack a box are actually packing boxes that are some, something to do with our boxes. So they're actually working for us, even though the profit doesn't necessarily come to you. The fact is they are working for you in a little bit. So you can consider that you're capturing an agent, you're capturing a market, much the same way as you might be selling razors and you want to then um, outdo your competition who's also selling razors and that you end up pushing it in a way that makes it more inviting and people start buying your product. So I can see there's a little bit of overlay there, but it gets a little bit goofy. Yeah, it doesn't just come down. There's to like a, a there's like a general pattern recognition extra scalar. Yeah, does it just come down to a question of who gets to direct how resources are managed? Well, in that in that simple analogy, yeah, because we're just watching a gesture of uh, transaction and resource management. So the question that comes up for me then is. If there is a smooth relationship between the economic and military and political aspects, what is the underlying material cause of this constantly reoccurring division between um, into varieties of responsibility, political, economic and military? Why is it that it keeps falling into those three separate sets? Or is that just an illusion created by the fact that um, coming out of a particular cultural circumstance? Well, each of them at the high academic levels is moving into realms of philosophy that incorporates the other. Mm. So it's a division of labour. It's a specialisation of role. Right, and as the role, as the basis for those divisions, maybe we've got it entirely upside down, and the basis for the division for those roles is just a strict question of are you attempting to achieve your ends by violence? Well, then that must be a, a military action. Are you attempting to achieve your ends through you know financial instruments and resource allocations? Well, maybe. Well, then you must be doing it through the market. Are you attempting to achieve your ends through manipulation of the rules about what people are and are not allowed to do and what the political elements of the state are? Well, then that must be a, a political decision. And they all cross over, and yet our human mind identifies patterns and boundaries and allocates, you know, like a triangle. It's It's got the three distinct angles, mm. even though each of them incorporates some of the other and if you put them all into a venn diagram couldn't you just call it both the market and war and if it's a market what is the essential transaction because uh. with a war the essential transaction is territory yeah, I I don't know if that's the case though. Clausewitz warns us against assuming that there's a that there's a strict measurement of material outcomes that can determine whether or not wars are successful or not. I mean, the entire point of Clausewitz's approach is to say that 
if you achieve the political outcomes of the war, then you've been successful. And very likely that will correlate with the destruction of enemy forces and the capturing of territory, but not, not absolutely necessarily. So I don't know if I can believe in a, a, a strict material score of outcome. Okay, so in the market, I'm boiling it down to the conception of value. You're competing for value. Hmm. Both literal and conceived, perceived. And, and what is, what are those two? Are we, is perceived value like fulfillment of people's desires? Well, it goes but, abstract again, doesn't it? Because the value might be, oh, the translation of that activity into capital asset or no sorry into financial asset or it might be uh, the translation of that value into uh, momentum and control so it becomes tautological it just jumps around in circles okay we don't want to talk about markets anymore let's talk about value and can't you do the same for war or well, I don't want to talk about the strict control of territory and the material asset let's talk about uh, perpetuity we're actually just competing for existence mm. or what is existence if not what you value so what if we perform that same maneuver in the political sphere are we moving away from votes and instead saying what are we just saying oh my social set is available to or gains the ability to present people within my social set you know uh, sweet job opportunities as opposed to the people within your social set? Is it just a straight social network competition that's happening between elites at the highest level? Right, illustrations of confidence. It's like a, a, well, it's status, but it's also perpetuity again. Mm. You're looking at having power, but you're also looking at perpetuating that. Interesting. Um, I w and I don't think it's necessarily stability. I don't think it's necessarily... Um, it, I mean, power seems to fit. Yeah, I, I agree. And power is what you... Power does seem to fit. Sorry. But the downside of that is, of course, the immediate question arises, what do you mean by power? Right? Oh, the ability. Power is your ability to uh, enact the becoming of what you view. So again, it boils down to value. Yeah, so the question arises, what do you mean by power? And I'm not convinced that there's a solid answer to that question. We can, we can define it certain ways, but not in a way that ever stops us from just changing our mind and defining out as something else later on. Well, it's already defined. It's in physics. Power is your ability to affect change. Well, the physical definition is force equals mass times acceleration. But that's not a particularly informative anyone in the political or market spheres, right? I mean, unless you're willing to be a complete materialist and just boil everything straight down to the movement of atoms. But that doesn't seem like an informative way to go about thinking about the world. No. No, it's not. So, fundamentally, we accept that power is an analogy in the political sphere. Yeah, but if we use it as an analogy, we're taking away from uh, mass times acceleration. We're going to look at 
what I, okay let's just as a thought experiment okay examine it through the lens of value mm-hmm. the ability to increase what you value or at least maintain its perpetuity and or and or reduce what you don't value and that's what it is you have this this wing of the of, of the social group the polity that's saying hey i like these values and then it happens to be the majority so it's power to increase uh, the effect or the perpetuity of its whatever it values has increased because it's now got control okay. and so every single one of those three the military the political and the market are all playing with values through different rule systems and through different mechanisms of influence hmm. with the same overarching map of dimensions of influence in general reduced down to dimensions of influence that are relevant further managed in terms of resource deployment Hmm. and you're right to then look at those three and think well are they even relevant or are they just human dimensions to this issue of value applying human endeavor towards the becoming of what is valued in the abstract and is value and values the same thing in that example yes right and am i to assume that values are created by cultural reproduction well it's suggesting that it feeds back on itself and that there is the history of an enduring system creates the values by which it endures (laughs) yeah yeah yes it feeds itself sure it's like it's living yeah that's right so schema of valuation value their own continued existence so they reproduce both themselves and their system of valuing because like everything else in the universe they exist within an evolutionary uh, format in which those things that don't reproduce themselves disappear from existence right well now we're going to go extropian Because that is a primitive lens, because that's bound by the biosphere. That's bound by the history of humanity and the human form and what's required for humans to endure and engage in, pros- you know, engage in a manner that enables prosperity and competitive advantage. Right? That's all restricted by this biospheric world. When we shift to, say, steel boxes in space, um, augmented beings, great minds, um, living in hallucinations with the ability to use robots to manage the external world. Are we human anymore? Well, probably not at that point. That's the extropian vision. Um, and we could go that way. We can stay on Earth and just go into neural enhancements and additional hemispheres and then we can just plug into the matrix sort of style so there's different ways to envision how we might become more than human or different than yeah but uh, and as such with that scenario, disengagement in the, yeah in, in the sci-fi scenario that you've um, painted for us yes we can yep. free ourselves from the material conditions 
in the sense right. that we as humans free ourselves from the material impositions that um, evolution theoretically um, yep. imposes on us. But what it mm-hmm. doesn't do is free us from the fundamental logic of existence, which is that that which continues continues and that which doesn't continue doesn't continue. So this theoretical extropian civilization could just as easily d- disappear off the stage of history through failing to uh, produce itself again. Well, inevitably, they will have to triumph over whatever revolution in value occurs. Because at the end of the day, engaging with the biosphere gives us something to fall back on. In an extropian world, we don't understand the scope of the dimensions that are in play. So we don't understand how their values are going to be shaped by their ability to perpetuate themselves. If they can't perpetuate themselves, if they find a way to believe they live forever, if they upload their consciousness into a machine, maybe the value system is so mangled in comparison to what we maintain that it's it's incomprehensible. And so conjecture at this point is beyond me. All I can say is that the history, um, that is the legacy of, of the story, the story of our value system evolving and feeding itself and shaping itself, it's as if that system tells a story and that it's all gone once we're a new species and once we disentangle ourselves from a biosphere. Right, and Nietzsche famously proposed the revaluation of all values to critically, critically assess the values that came down to us through the accidents of history and, and decide whether we wanted to maintain them and if not, then to transform them into something else. The problem being, of course, that what is the basis on which you alter those values? Well, on the basis of what you've inherited. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> it's a long way advanced from, you know, Marx's labour theory of value, but it still doesn't get us outside the box, if you see what I mean. Like the tree of inheritance of values reproducing itself is likely one that is dynamic. It's not just a direct machinic reproduction of the same values again and again, or else we would agree with all of our ancestors about exactly what is valuable and what is not. Okay, well, find me a value that will we'll work in the other direction. Find mm-hmm. me a value that I can divorce from at least one of the three that we've got. The military, the political, and the market. Use uh, your own. I, I don't know if I can. That's right. I don't know if I can either. I like to think that a free mind can imagine a way to verse in logic how it could be true. And so I'm tempted to just throw one up there. Uh, the value the value of the opportunity to rest. Mm. I value the rest I get. I value my rest. I value my rest quite highly. How much do I value it? Well, enough to fight for it at a certain point. Yeah, anyone who's got loud, lousy neighbours who they've 
uh, loud and <laughs> lousy neighbours, and they've gone and said, "Shut the hell up! I need to sleep." Understands there. Right. Yeah, and I'm even talking to my neighbours because they're the ones interfering. Yeah. So there's your politics. And the market is. Uh, where can I find it? How can okay. I access it? What can I what can I do to make it happen? Yeah, the problem here is that that's at the level of the individual. Right. Step it up then. Okay. Cool. So what if, uh, at the level of the military organisation, what is the value of rest? And and in fact, let me abstract it one step further before we get into that. Can organisations have values? A lot of them claim to have, but I'm sceptical of it. And all of the people within an organisation obviously don't all hold exactly the same values because they're all individuals. And we've already discussed the way that it's impossible to kind of collate preferences towards an averaged end that is satisfying for all involved. Damn, I just hit true, false and meaningless. Mm. Because as soon as you divorce it from life, I don't see how it can. I mean, I can see how a corporate entity would be programmed to maintain its own perpetuity or maximize value mm. and do the best that it can because it's programmed with that value, but can it actually have its own value? Well, if it doesn't suffer, then how could it? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it can. I think that value holding is something that only conscious beings are doing. Or, or what a beautiful note. Mind I like that. Is. Yeah. This sets us up nicely for another podcast if you're interested in th talking about Nick Land at some point. Sure. Because he has a nice, he does a nice line of combination science fiction, post-humanist and market and um, market entities. It's a good place to close on. Great. It's, it feels like it's a, a celebration of life onwards yeah. more being, That's right. being my summary of the maxim of life only we can do it so let's do it nice thanks, thanks very much you've been listening to the rogue insider podcast mm.